Our sermon text this morning comes from Revelation. We are continuing by looking at the letters to the seven churches. And so this morning we are looking at the letter to the church in Thyatira. This is Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he, who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus, you are loving and holy, and merciful, and holy, and stern. Help us to be careful to listen to you well. Help us to hear your voice, and then to bring our lives into alignment. We pray it in your name. Amen. I'm a member of the Missouri Botanical Gardens, which ought to not surprise any of you which is an internationally known botanical gardens. Uh, it's, it's such a well-done collection of plants. It's 158 years old, uh, and they have something like 7,500 species in various plant collections uh, in the gardens. Well, Late last year, before I came here to Princeville, I was walking through the gardens, and I, I, I noticed that there were tree crews cutting down green ash all throughout the garden. And I thought that was kind of a puzzle. I know that green ash trees have a struggle. Um, But on a recent visit, I had the opportunity to meet meet the master horticulturalist, the the chief horticulturalist of the gardens. He's a very knowledgeable, well-trained British guy who's in charge of the 7,500 species and the various plantings around the, uh, the 30 acres of, of uh, botanical garden. 
He is responsible. He's got protective interests for, for how well these things do, how, how healthy they are. He's got protective interests in the investments in the botanical garden. And so I asked him about the green ash. I said, why did, you, why did all the green ash get cut out of the garden? And he, he, his answer kind of surprised me because it was very forward-seeing. He said, <clears throat> they were just starting to be diseased. They were just starting to experience disease, and we had to remove them in order to protect the health of the other plants, to preserve the beauty of the garden, and to keep people safe. I thought, ah, you know, that's a really tough call to make in a 158-year-old botanical garden is to have to cut out all the green ash that are around the, around the grounds. And as we, as we consider that, this is how we have to think about these letters that are going out to the churches in Revelation. Jesus is one who has a vested interest in the health and beauty of his church. And therefore, he walks back and forth in the church and he examines it. He examines it. Deuteronomy 11.12 says this, The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon the land of promise from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Beloved, the church is the land of promise now. This is the place where the promises are held. This is the place where Christ just pours out his grace. Those people who say, well, you know, I don't really have to go to church to worship the Lord. Well, in part, that's true, but their growth in grace is going to be truncated because this is where God works. This is where God pours his grace out upon people. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So the Holy Spirit right now is searching your heart and mind. The Holy Spirit right now is scrutinizing and examining because he is the Spirit of Christ. He's the Spirit of the living God. Jesus is protective of his interests and his investment in the church. He loves his church. He loves his church. And as he examines the ways of man, he examines and assesses the health of his church. He wants the very best for her in this world and in the next. His eyes of flaming fire depicted this way because of the way in which he scrutinizes and sees the condition of his church. He sees where there is faithfulness in the church, and he fans that to flame so that there's more faithfulness. He also sees where there is unfaithfulness and hidden evil, taking steps to remove it before it becomes dangerous to the whole church, which is why the warning is given that Jezebel will be thrown on a sickbed and that her children will be made dead. He cares about the health of his church. And so that's what's going on in these seven letters. Jesus is examining his church, and he's pointing out those things that he says, you're doing this right, and you're doing this well. Keep going. Keep going. But there are these other things that you're not doing so well, and you need to reassess. You better pull back and take a look at that. So now we'll turn our attention to Thyatira, which 
actually is probably one of the least important cities and the least important church, if you want to put it that way, in this collection of seven letters. This was some backcountry town. It wasn't even on a main highway that you would come across the town as you were traveling down the main highway, like the Via Appia or the Via Media. That, that those, it wasn't on one of those roads. It was off on the side somewhere. But you see, even though it's a remote town and you had to deliberately go to Thyatira, it was not someplace that Jesus overlooked. He sends this little church his letter. Now here's the application. There are no inconsequential places and there are no inconsequential churches in Christ's view. This might be an unimportant church, or Thyatira might have been an unimportant, or the least important church of the seven churches, but it's not unimportant. It might have been the least important among those seven, but it's not unimportant. It was not overlooked. Princeville Presbyterian may seem like one of the least important churches in, in the state of Illinois, but it's not overlooked by the Lord Jesus Christ. He cares intimately about what goes on here. He cares intimately about who we are. And in fact, this church is not unimportant. It is a reformed outpost as you look north, as you look west, as you look east. For at least 70 miles, there's no other reformed churches. We are important for where we are. We can look out in those directions and know that this is where we can spread the Reformed gospel and and nobody else is doing that presently. This is is as significant as sending a shoebox to Rwanda. I, I could tell you a story about people whose lives were touched by missionaries when they were kids and when they got older, they became so influential, they actually changed the policies of a country because they were loved by Christians. That's for another time. There's no inconsequential church in the earth, and especially for the position that we're in. So our faithfulness is important. Jesus sees you. Jesus knows you. He is delighted with some of the things that the church does, and he sees areas of improvement for this church. So there's a commendation here, and the first commendation is, I know your works, your love, and your faith, and your service, and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. What a contrast to Ephesians, right? Oh, you guys are great with doctrine, but for heaven's sake, you've lost your first love. Come on back to your first love. That's what, that's what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. But here, the, comment, the commendation is, Not only do you have all these good works, but you have been increasing over time. Your good works are improving. They're getting better and more beautiful. Excellent, excellent. Keep going. This is the kind of praise that every single church wants to hear. Now think about this. Look back over the last six years from when you first started Awana to where you are now. Awana is not a small potatoes ministry. You are touching the hearts of young people in this community. And true, they might not be attending this church, but that doesn't stop the power of the gospel. 
And what started out as something very small at first, what did we have like in the last couple of weeks? 40 kids? 35 kids? 35 kids being impacted by the gospel week by week by week. Do you think they'll remember that? Yes, they will. And so the, exhort, or the, uh, the, the commendation is this. Excellent, excellent, keep going. Keep going. The Lord gives you his praise. We want to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. We may continue to do this and bring glory to his name. But the condemnation in this letter is striking. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. This is a blistering rebuke. This is a blistering rebuke for this little church. It's really doubtful that there was any woman here that was actually named Jezebel. But it was known among these people that she was a model, a type, a symbol for great wickedness. Great wickedness. It's something that the church needed to make a connection to. Jezebel is notorious from the Old Testament. She was the daughter of the king of Sidon. Now, we might not ordinarily think that that's an important thing, but Sidon was an old Canaanite city. It was one of the cities that Joshua and the people of Israel was supposed to destroy completely every living thing. And the Israelites were unable to do it because there was great wickedness in their worship. There was great wickedness in their religious practice. Well, this daughter Jezebel of the king of Sidon married King Ahab of Israel, that is the northern tribes. The northern tribes gradually stepped away from God's eternal covenant because they wanted to do their own thing. They couldn't stand being bound to God through the covenant of David. They wanted to do their own thing. They wanted their own temples. They wanted their own priesthood. Friends, we're in danger of doing something like that always in our hearts. We're always in danger of doing that in our hearts. We always need to be watching over our hearts that we would not step away from God's grace. Well, she married Ahab, and once she did that, she started introducing idol worship and sexual immorality into the country. And the people fell into it happily. She ruled over her husband with great ferocity. She actually did conniving works. She had uh, a man killed just because Ahab wanted his vineyard. She was a woman of great wickedness. She began to suppress and eliminate the prophets of Yahweh. She was a profound evil influence. She violently imposed her religion on Israel. And so the original Jezebel was a model of idolatrous wickedness among God's people. So whoever this Jezebel was in the church of Thyatira, she was a source of wickedness. Wrong teaching and license. Through her practice and teaching, she made many Christians 
She made Christian liberty a plea for license among the people of God. And from this, she refused to repent. That's what we're told. But that's part A. Part B is more troubling. Look what Jesus says to his church. You tolerate Jezebel. What kind of a Christian church tolerates that kind of wickedness? I mean, seriously. Do we not love the Lord? Is he not holy? Are we not called to a holy life and to bring his glory into every corner of our lives? What kind it, it's, such a, it's such a blistering rebuke. With all that this woman was doing in the church, those who were responsible for the spiritual health of the church were doing nothing about it. Which doesn't speak very well. They were tolerating teachings and practices of this person. Maybe they thought it was best to leave well enough alone. Thyatira was a city that was notorious, filled with trade unions. There were trade unions, guilds all throughout the city, and each trade union had its own deity, and each trade union had its own religious practices, which frequently involved sexual immorality. And so the Christians who were a part of those trade unions had to make a choice. They had to make a trade-off. Am I going to walk with Jesus or am I going to give in to these religious expectations because it'll let me keep my job? That's really what was going on. And sadly, the leadership of the church was not doing anything to curb Jezebel's teaching. And the fact was that they tolerated it and the rest of the church was becoming endangered by the wickedness. Because, as we read earlier in Corinthians, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Friends, don't dabble with sin. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you discover sin growing in your life and in your heart, Run to Jesus and ask him to cut it out of you and kill it. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It kills fellowship. It kills prayer. It kills any interest and concern for the living God. Jesus looks at that and says, okay, the tree's not fully dead yet, but it's starting to die and it's going to endanger everything around it. We have to cut it out. And so let's, let's be faithful. Now, I'm telling you, church discipline is a difficult thing. Nobody likes church discipline. Nobody likes it. El- elders and pastors don't like church discipline. First of all, it grieves us deeply. We would rather not have to do it. We would rather not have to say to somebody, you're acting as an infidel, and if you don't stop, we have to remove you from the church. Nobody likes saying that. But the fact is, Jesus expects it. 
The congregation doesn't like church church discipline because it typically means that one of their friends is going to be lopped off and that their loyalties are suddenly going to be tested. Do I, do I love my friend or do I love Jesus? That's hard. We don't like church discipline. So everybody would just rather, you know, let's just sweep this under the rug and cover it over and not do anything with it. Because invariably, if you confront one person with sin and you call them to account and you threaten to remove them from the fellowship, you're almost guaranteed to lose about eight people. Because people think that their human loyalties somehow are as holy as loyalty to God or loyalty to Christ. Let that not be the case. Our love for Christ must be overwhelmingly, unswervingly devoted. That's why Paul says to the Corinthian church, I've already assessed this man. I've already pronounced judgment on him. And when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver this man over to Satan so that his flesh will be destroyed and his soul will be saved. Does it make us nervous? Yes. I tremble if I ever have to bring somebody under church discipline. But I tremble more to think of the displeasure of my Lord if I disobey him, mutiny against him, and do my own thing. And so should every one of us. Every one of us who has a true conversion. Church discipline is a necessary thing, even if it's uncomfortable. It's necessary for the people of God. It preserves the honor of Christ For Christ is holy, and his name is to be held up among us as holy. Church discipline protects the church from further corruption, and we are redeemed to be holy unto the Lord. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. If somebody gets away doing, let's say, sexual immorality or some other kind of sin, well, how long do you think it's going to be before somebody else is going to want to do it? As the Proverbs say, When a sentence is not administered swiftly, the people run quickly to rebellion. So church discipline is a necessity. Church discipline restores true believers unto Christ by exposing their sin and leading them to repentance. True Christians. Jesus loves his church. And his flaming eyes go to and fro throughout the earth to preserve the holiness of those for whom he shed his blood. His blood is precious. His love is precious. His protective care is precious. We ought never to discount it for some sort of bauble that the world dangles in front of our eyes. Is this not what we declare at the table this morning, that Christ's blood is so precious that he shed it for us that we may partake partake with him and have communion with him? Do we not love him who gave everything to wash us from our sin? So Jesus' warning is frightening. 
because she refuses to repent, this Jezebel will be thrown on a sickbed, and those who follow her may in fact face death. This is not idle. If we don't exercise church discipline, Christ will. This is why elders care for your soul. This is why elders pray for you and seek to learn where you're at so that we know how to guide you and lead you and pray for you. Here's the promise. I have to skip down toward the end here. To the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. There's only one indicator as to who the morning star is in Scripture. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. If we overcome present operating evils and we exercise the proper kind of biblical church discipline before the Lord, and that's a whole separate subject which I need to address at some point. When we do that, then we receive the morning star. We receive Jesus himself, that fellowship and that intimacy with Christ, which means that we have communion with the Father and the Spirit as well. Jesus is the root and the descendant of David and the bright morning star, it says in Revelation 22. And so when he says, I'll give you the morning star, what he's saying is, I'll give you myself. You will reign and rule with me. If you will be faithful in ruling this little thing that the Lord has given you presently, I will give you to rule with me in the new heavens and the new earth with a rod of iron. What Jesus promises the church that conquers false teaching and the strong temptation to sensual license is to be seated with him, to have that sweet, good fellowship with him, which is the heavenly riches reward. That's what it is. And that's reserved for us. A fellowship that we can enjoy with Christ now. Beloved, this little church as faithful as what it was in doing good things, was in need of some serious, serious spiritual discipline being exercised by the church leadership. May we learn the lesson of what this church has been rebuked for. May we be watchful and careful. Pray for us as your elders. It's a a heavy responsibility. We are burdened by it. But pray for us that we would do this faithfully for the sake of the health of the flock and the honor of Christ. That we may have that kind of fellow, that that we all may have that kind of fellowship with him by overcoming and being rewarded the morning star. May that be the marker of your life, that kind of love and obedience that the morning star will be set apart as yours.